This is Owen Hattesey. You're joining an episode of Plain Speaking. Plain Speaking uh, in this episode is coming from the University of Melbourne. I'm over here to try to do a PhD in Irish Australian history at Monash University. We're here in the fantastic radio studio, uh, thanks to Gavin Nabar at the University of Melbourne. And we're here to discuss higher education in Australia and the impact of the coronavirus. And I'm joined, I'm delighted to be joined by John Daly. John is the CEO of the Grattan Institute. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's uh, particularly appropriate to be speaking to your Irish listeners, given that ultimately Grattan Institute is named after... Henry Grattan, who I think has a statue in Dublin. He does indeed. The Irish uh, reach is quite strong here in Melbourne. The founder of this university was also Irish as well. Indeed. (laughs) John, before we get into the issue itself, can you explain the the Grattan Institute for the listeners? So the Grattan Institute uh, is Australia's leading domestic policy think tank. So uh, we look at domestic policy, so things like health, uh, education, uh, energy, um, budgets, tax, all of those kinds of things that national governments can, you know, and state governments can more or less control for themselves. We do research on it. Uh, we then talk about the outcomes of that research with the public through the media, uh, with politicians, with um, public servants, with opinion leaders, and hopefully some of the time we lead to better public policy for Australians. And if we can move on to the to the subject in question, which is Australia's higher education sector and the impact of the coronavirus. But before we get into the coronavirus, Australia's higher education sector, when I came here 10 years ago, I came here with a backpack, I start working at the University of Melbourne, I didn't know the scale or the size of higher education here in Australia, and it's phenomenal. Can you paint the picture of the size of Australia's higher education landscape? So roughly speaking, Australian universities have revenues of around about $33, $34 billion a year. That's roughly 2% of Australia's GDP. Uh, and uh, they have been growing rapidly, much faster, much, much faster than inflation. In terms of overall enrolments, almost one in two 18-year-olds in Australia goes to university. Uh, in terms of the overall population, roughly a third of the population now has a university degree. Nearly 10 years ago when I was here, Australia's government issued a glossy white paper. It outlined how the, outlined how the century ahead was the Asian century and how within this century the region in which Australia sits would become home to most of the world's middle class. The paper was right in that respect and Australia became a destination of choice for China's middle class to send their only children to be educated. And since 2000, we've seen enrolments from China grow 20-fold. Can you take us back um, in time? Was it an accident of geography that saw Australia um, benefit from higher educa- from international education or was it, was it good policy decisions along the way? Or was it sort of slightly happenstance? So um, I think it was partly that Australian universities were slightly feeling the squeeze uh, from the federal government, um, wasn't giving them quite as much funding as it had. Uh, partly just the legal setup of Australia's universities meant they were in many ways relatively unconstrained. There's, there's relatively little capacity for the federal government to legislate to tell universities what they can and can't do. So when some of them decided, let's go after the foreign student market, um, there was kind of nothing in the way. Uh, and then having done a little bit of it, um, they discovered that it was working pretty well, so they did more of it. There was no way that anyone could tell them to stop, and so they never stopped. And to be fair, that foreign student um, market goes back a long way. I mean, all the way back in 2002, Australia uh, was um, uh, earning in the order of about um, $5 billion of um international student revenue. So it's been around a long time. It's grown pretty steadily. Um, I think it's benefited from a couple of things. Um, One is uh, that um, Australia is seen as a very attractive place to live. 
We've had visa conditions that um, meant that for a lot of the last decade or so, um, students who came to study in Australia, once they'd passed their degree, had a right to work in Australia for two years after they had finished their degree. And then, of course, if they got lucky, they might well find an employer and then be able to extend their visas even further. Um, so that made it pretty attractive. At various stages, the Australian exchange rate has been very favourable relative to its major competitors, namely um, uh, the US, Canada and the UK. Um uh, all of those, and then of course there's the geography that we sit in more or less the same sort of time zones as Asia, and that's been helpful as well. And of course, being an English language jurisdiction has been crucial. Um, a lot of the Asian students are looking for an English language instruction. Um, uh, that's one of the things they're aiming for, and you know that means we're not competing against all that many people. And then of course, a couple of years ago, we had. Um, uh, the UK voting for Brexit. We had Donald Trump um, coming in in America. Uh, I don't think either of those things uh, would have ever been interpreted as rolling out the welcome mat uh, to international visitors from Asia. Uh, and Australia through that period quite aggressively did roll out the welcome mat. Uh, and also partly because Australian universities got into this game really early. As I said, that was already a material industry back in 2002. So they just had the virtues of incumbency and they had you know figured out how to market to these asian markets and they were very have been and continue to be very sophisticated about it um and uh they essentially got a march on everyone else and and so i think the estimates are there about australia is about 25% of the total asian foreign student market and that's obviously completely disproportionate to the size of the country and and looking at the revenue from that international students pay an average of $30,000 which is in around 15,000 euro a year plus accommodation cost how important is this revenue to Australia's universities now? So if we just focus on the fees that students pay, because, of course, they also wind up coming here and spending money on books and meals and accommodation, all sorts of other things. Um, so that, that other stuff is actually even larger in terms of export revenue. But just focusing on the fees they pay, that's about $14 billion a year. As I said, remember that Australia's universities' revenues are about $33, $34 billion a year. So $14 billion out of that is international students. Um, about another $14 of billion of revenue for the Australian universities is essentially direct subsidy one way or another through all kinds of different schemes from the Commonwealth Government. And about $5 billion a year effectively comes from Australian students who pay income contingent loans. So in fact, that $5 billion, uh, at least up front, comes out of the pocket of the Commonwealth Government on top of its $14 billion of subsidy. Uh, and the Commonwealth Government hopes that eventually the students are going to pay it back to them. So overall, you've got revenues of 33. 14 of that is international students. 14 is direct subsidy from the Commonwealth Government. And five is indirect subsidy uh, from the Commonwealth Government in the sense that they guarantee the loans, but ultimately it's being paid by local students. And have we seen the sector grow in terms of the, the physical infrastructure of the sector? We're here in, in Melbourne University with a considerable campus. Have you seen it grow from these revenues that come in and how important is it in their individual budgets, do you think? So, um, obviously, the average budget of an Australian university means that, you know, well over a third of its revenue is ultimately coming from international students. Um, in terms of the very specific um, revenues of um, uh, things like the University of Sydney, the University of Melbourne, Monash University, 
um, uh, the University of New South Wales, so Australia's four largest universities, um, in the order of about 20% of their students' total student body comes from China. So when Chinese students can't come to Australia, that is a really big deal. And if you look back at, at that decade um, and the, the benefits and, and negatives associated with this growth, I worked here, as I said, at the University of Melbourne for nearly 10 years. I saw an extraordinary development of, of a, a phenomenal health precinct just next door here. I'm seeing an innovation precinct being developed across the road. So I'm seeing the benefits that the university is bringing to a city. But I've also heard and I've experienced in my, in my studies the tensions in the teaching setting um, when it comes to international education, the language barriers, the c- cultural differences. When you look back, what is the benefits and negatives you've seen for the growth of international education in in Melbourne and in Australia? So the growth of those students has meant that the universities have become much bigger, both as teaching institutions and as research institutions. So um, in addition to this big growth in international student revenue, we've also seen a very big growth in the number of local students as well. Um, Australia moved for a period to what was known as the demand-driven higher education system, uh, which meant that um, rather than the Commonwealth government setting quotas for the universities as to how many students they could take and saying, well, we'll only pay for this many students, it essentially said, we will pay this much for every arts student you take, no matter how many arts students you take. And so the proportion of the population going to university materially increased. Um, uh, That, of course, also, as well as the international students, increase the revenues of Australia's universities. So how big, how important were the international students? The short answer is they funded an awful lot of the building um, because uh, the universities charge international students more than they charge the local students. Um, uh, Our best guess is that the total revenue for a local student, so both the loan that they pay as well as the direct subsidy paid by the Commonwealth Government, is pretty close to the amount it costs to teach them. So they don't make a lot of profit on those, but they also don't make a huge loss either. The international students, they by and large make substantial surpluses. Uh, And particularly the large universities with significant um, reputations um, charge an even bigger premium. Um, Their costs aren't particularly higher, but they can charge a bigger premium. Um, Our estimates are that that those international students today, remember the total fees being charged are in the order of um, $11 billion. Um, our estimates are that the surplus on those students um, is at least $1.2 billion, possibly more like about $2 billion. So it's quite a substantial surplus. And that's effectively money in a vice chancellor's pocket, if you like, that they can choose to spend on whatever you know is the university's priority. Um, In practice, the vast majority of those surpluses has essentially been redirected to research. Overall, it's enabled the Australian universities to massively increase the amount of research that they do. So over a 15-year period, Australian universities, in real terms, roughly speaking, doubled how much they spend on research. They doubled the number of people that they employ in pure research roles. Uh, They've doubled the number of research um, students doing doing research degrees um, like yours, PhD and Masters by Research, uh, and they have doubled the number of referee journal articles that they produce um, within a sort of 10 or 15 year period. Um, so that's pretty impressive. Um, uh, that's meant that Australian universities have had a period of really quite extraordinary growth and 
most of that has effectively been funded by this rapid growth in international students. If we move on here to the impact of the coronavirus, um, on higher education in, in Australia. When America banned uh, Chinese nationals from travelling to their country, Australia quickly followed suit. What impact did this have, um, or is having on Australia's higher education sector now? So obviously when, you know, something like 20% of the entire student body of four of our largest universities is coming from China, uh, the impact of that is pretty material. Uh, and indeed for, um, you know, a large number of Australian universities, the revenue that they get from just Chinese students is substantially more than their annual surplus. So if they don't cut their costs at all, um, but they don't have the revenue from Chinese students, by definition, a whole series of universities that were making pretty healthy surpluses will be posting material deficits. Um, So, yes, this is a big deal from the point of view of universities. It certainly puts a lot of their... um, Uh, uh, finances under a lot more strain. Now, those big universities I've spoken about also have um, essentially built much larger endowments over the last couple of years. Uh, And so that will provide some kind of buffer. I mean, obviously, they will be eating into their buffers by definition. Uh, And of course, it's also meaning that universities are looking long and hard at their cost line. So in 2018, your colleague Andrew Norton in in a report on higher education observed that with flat government revenues, Australian universities are vulnerable to a downturn in the international student market. Picking up on what you said, do you think universities will have to close? I don't think any university will have to close um, because it's not making enough revenue for international students. It's just going to have to think a lot harder than it is at the moment. They're going to have to make many more tough decisions. In, in a world in which universities have typically been generating larger and larger surpluses every year as there were more and more international students, you know, that's a world in which you don't have to make a huge number of particularly difficult decisions. Um, if you want to do something new, you've got extra unit money to do it with. You don't have to do it by finding some activity to shut down, which invariably, you know, in a university, it's a highly controversial thing to do. Um, uh, but in the brave new world, they will. I mean, you know, put this in context, the University of Sydney, we estimate its revenue in 2017 from international Chinese students was only $500 million a year. That's a lot of revenue to make up, or more to the point, a lot of cost decisions that you now have to make. Um, so I think this is going to be painful, but it's not going to be fatal. Um, of course, Australian universities may well also have to think about whether they need to essentially um, shut domestically. We've just literally in the last 24 hours see the Italian government um, uh, announce the closure um, of uh, schools and universities for at least two weeks. Um, Unless we see the number of new coronavirus cases per day falling in Italy, and that will be optimistic uh, in two weeks' time, then presumably that will just get extended. Um, If this virus does really get out into the community and it's showing signs in lots of countries of doing exactly that, um, uh, then an obvious thing to do is to essentially shut down things where lots of people from different places congregate together and schools and universities are one of the first things that you shut down. So I think that's also you know, uh, something that inevitably Australian higher education will have to think about whether that's going to be necessary. Uh, if if this virus continues the way it has been, um, you know, the historic models suggest that this is going to be tough. I mean, if you look at what were the social impacts of the 1918-1919 influenza virus, which in some ways is may well wind up being 
comparable to coronavirus, similar kind of infection rate from the best guess we can make at the moment, probably similar kind of, in, of, de- of mortality rate affecting different people because coronavirus is much more um, affecting old people, older people. But, um, uh, you know, it's similar-ish. And you li- read the reports at the time. And, of course, it was incredibly disruptive. Not, not Of course, you know, many people died and heaven knows that dis- you know, changes life. Um, but even for those who didn't die, it was extremely disruptive. Uh, and, of course, that was a world that was sort of coming out of the end of World War II. Oh, sorry, World War I. Um, Inevitably, this is going to be pretty disruptive, not just for universities, but for lots and lots and lots of people um, if this epidemic really does take off. Now, that doesn't mean that life will stop. It just means it'll be different for a while uh, and then it'll go back. And of course, that's one of the big questions for Australian universities is, is this a how much is this a one off blip and how much is this an ongoing thing? Um, If this, like many epidemics, basically plays out over a sort of six to 12 month period. That's going to be an economically very difficult period for Australian universities. The bottom line, however, is that most of them have pretty substantial financial buffers. This will eat into those financial buffers. Um, But then assuming that most of the foreign student revenue comes back, they'll be in a pretty reasonable position, pretty similar to where they are today. I think many of them were quite, many of the Australian universities were quite worried about the fact that the coronavirus had hit because it had come from China and the Australian government had closed the border between China and Australia. They were, I think, very worried that all of the Northern Hemisphere universities were essentially going to steal their students um, because those Chinese students, having not been able to start in Australia in March, would instead start in the Northern Hemisphere in September. Now, of course, as the coronavirus plays out, um, the assumption that everybody is going to be um, taking lots of students in in the Northern Hemisphere in September is less clear, shall we say. Uh, And that ironically may be the silver lining for the Australian universities, uh, although, of course, a pretty dark cloud for Northern Hemisphere universities, not to mention Northern Hemisphere people much more generally. I love that you've retreated to history to find insight in this job. It doesn't happen enough, to be honest, in life. Um, I've detected anxiousness since I come here, and I, I've never detected anxiousness in Melbourne in my time here. Aussies are, you know, traditionally laid back, but I've, I've seen it from people I, I didn't think I'd hear it from senior members of, of academia. There's an anxious here, and stepping outside higher education, we're seeing panic buying of goods. Um, what's the economic impact you're seeing? Or is it too early to see that? Or what's the, what, what's the kind of play you're seeing currently in the Australian economy on this? It certainly slowed things down and it'd be pretty strange if it didn't. Um, so it's uh, not surprisingly one of the first places that it hits is the travel agency, uh, travel business. Um, uh, though we've just seen um, some of the lowest, in fact, the lowest fares from Australia to um, Northern America that we've had since the global financial crisis. Um, apparently you can get an extremely good deal to go on holidays in Northern Queensland right at the moment. Um, so uh, that's inevitably the first industry to be hit. Um, people stop going out so much. Um, those, those are the kind of immediate impacts. Um, the Commonwealth Treasury is already um, uh, flagging that it will need to look at quite significant stimulus measures. The Reserve Bank has, has um, uh, implemented an emergency rate cut um, uh, that up until you know, three weeks ago was a long way from anybody's minds. Um uh, so we've seen significant economic impacts already. Um, many people are expecting uh, the Australian economy, which was, as it 
turns out, in fact, doing pretty well up until December. The bushfires were a hit to that. Coronavirus is, we expect, going to be a substantially greater hit. Quite a chance that Australia um, will see its economy go backwards for a quarter or two. Um, So that's a material economic impact. We don't yet know how large. And that, of course, depends on, well, how long does the coronavirus go for? Um, What are the social impacts of it? How many people are affected? Um, How many measures do governments put in place to essentially um, discourage people from going out and mixing and all of those kinds of things? What are the economic knock-ons of effects of those? How many businesses as a result um, wind up with liquidity problems that means that they go out of business? All of these things are very unknown. Um, But I think on any view, it is already clear that this is the most significant um, pandemic that the world has seen since 1919. It may well be on a similar scale. We don't yet know that. May well be materially smaller, but it could easily be that order of magnitude. Um, uh, it's worth remembering that you know significantly more people died of Spanish flu than died in the trenches in World War One. Um, uh, you know, if you're looking for which event actually you know really decimated the population, it was not the war. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I think that's why these things inevitably cause real anxiousness. And, and you know, this is existential. Uh, this is, as a result of this disease, I might die much earlier than I had expected. Now, given what we know about this disease, it's more like my parents or my grandparents might die much earlier than I or they expected. Um, but that's existential. Um, and as soon as you realise that that's on the cards... Um, uh, it inevitably starts to take over thinking very quickly. Um, and then when, in addition, it's got potential economic impacts, that means that essentially every business and every organisation, such as universities, has to start worrying about, well, do we start running the operations quite difficult, quite differently um, if these organisations are responsibly run, and most of them are, uh, they immediately start, planning for that and being pretty explicit about, well, you know, this is a possibility, so what's the plan and let's talk about the plan. Um, Inevitably, that creates an enormous amount of anxiety. That said, on any view of the world, I think that this is potentially pretty serious um, and I would much rather slightly overreact (laughs) as a population and as a government and as a country um, than underreact and be caught napping. When the global financial crisis, as you Australians call it, we call it the recession back in Ireland hit, Australia responded by, I think, giving $700 to every citizen, correct me if I'm wrong here, as, as one of the policy kind of levers to, to get over that. Is is something like that, and are we close to the dreaded R word, recession in Australia, do you think, because of this um, virus, or what? and what kind of policy options do you see being weighed up in, in, the, in the political climate that we have? Um, so uh, if this turns out to be a significant epidemic that really gets running in the population, then, um, and of course, once a disease like this really gets running in the population, it will often wind up affecting somewhere between 20 and 60% of the population until essentially there's so many people have been infected that it starts to slow down. Um, if that really starts to happen... Um, then, uh, yes, absolutely, a recession is on the cards, you know. So, yes, that's possible. Um, obviously, I mean, there's been uh, material that's come out in the 
media over the last day or so in terms of how the Treasury is thinking about that. Um, one would imagine that in that world, this is a, both a supply and a demand shock. So both businesses are less able to produce things than they were. So it's a supply shock and it's a demand shock um, in the sense that people are much less excited about going out and buying things than they were before this hit. So it's a simultaneous shock to both sides of the economy. Needless to say, that's pretty hard to manage. Um, Trying to push at the um, demand side of the economy by essentially putting money into the hands of households um, is quite possibly um, an appropriate thing to do in that situation. And then you've got design questions about exactly how do you deliver that. But it's one thing that, as you say, Australia actually spent quite a lot of time thinking through for the, or had thought through well before the financial crisis and then used it when that financial crisis came along. But you also um, probably want to worry about the demands, uh, sorry, about the supply side of the economy. So particularly the thing you'd be worried about is um, a squeeze in cash flow, meaning that businesses go under. Uh, and so I suspect one of the things you might want to have a think about, although it will require very careful design, is the extent to which government essentially supplies loans to businesses uh, on terms that don't have to be repaid all that fast um, to ensure that they don't hit that kind of liquidity crunch, um, which you know would otherwise mean that a number of them go out of business and then you're destroying a whole bunch of capacity that you know, will or want back once the epidemic has passed. Now, of course, that's all assuming that this epidemic really gets running. I'm not saying that it will, but I think um, a lot of people are certainly starting to contemplate that as a significant possibility. What are the policy lessons? If you look back over the last number of years, what are the policy lessons that um, other countries could take from the growth of international education in Australia? So that's an interesting question as to, with the glorious wisdom of hindsight, would you constrain, for example, the growth of Chinese students because you were worried that the sector was becoming more vulnerable. Um, you know, Australian universities have been transformed over the last 20 years. You know, it's far more of them in the sort of top 100 um, uh, globally than were there um, 20 years ago. You know, this uh, um, Australian universities were struggling for any of them to crack the top 100. And, you know, now there's numbers of them in the top 50 and, and heading north of that. So, um, you know, it's a very different world. And I think even with the glorious wisdom of hindsight, if the choice was ignore international students or at least very severely constrain their growth or do what you did but, you know, face this problem with coronavirus, I think they'd probably say, well, I'll take the latter option. Thank you very much. Um, uh, and I'll deal with that crisis and it'll be tough and unpleasant for around 12 months, and then hopefully I'll be able to carry on from a base that's much higher than it would be otherwise. I think one of the things that has been clear, become clearer is, is that having a lot of international students in a classroom does change the ni- nature of the classroom, and it changes the nature of the teaching. And if you are serious about providing a high-quality experience both to domestic students and to international students, you don't really want a classroom that is 80% international students, as some um, uh, courses or at least subjects in Australia are. So I think with the glorious wisdom of hindsight, we might have constrained the growth a bit. Uh, And indeed, there are some faculties at some universities um, in Australia. I think the the, um, uh, law school here at the University of Melbourne is one such example that quite early on said, we don't want any subject to be more than about a third international students because when 
more than a third of the classroom English as a second language, we you really wind up changing the dynamics of the classroom, and and that's not really great for anybody. Um, and so they've essentially deliberately instituted policies to cap um, the number of international students in a particular classroom. Um, with the glorious wisdom of hindsight, it might have been sensible to do that a bit more often and a bit earlier. That means that the system might not have grown quite as fast and as far as it did. Probably have still grown very, very, very substantially, um, but it might have um, preserved a better student experience for both domestic and international students um, in a way that I think is is um, not being preserved in some classrooms uh, and some court, tertiary courses in Australia that uh, I think are poorer for it. And lastly, just in terms of the benefit, for me, seeing the city, the the influx of higher education to the city, the multicultural benefits that this has brought, to see the different types of restaurants, the foods, the cuisines you can experience in Melbourne, for me, that's nothing but a benefit to a city. To a city, it provokes understanding of different cultures and it exposes a national culture to different cultures. So I've seen a, an enormous benefit to Melbourne in that and um, could be a benefit to Ireland in some ways as well. So I think that's a kind of forgotten side effect of the benefit of, of in increasing international education? Uh, look, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think few people appreciate that of the very significant ramp up we've seen in Australian migration over the last 15 years, since about 2006, uh, these days, um, almost a half of that growth um, in population every year is essentially the growth in the number of students, or at least it has been until coronavirus hit. Um, so... The Australian migration story, which has been very successful one over the last 15 years in the terms of um, uh, a lot of young people, which has um, uh, very substantially reshaped the Australian population. So we don't have the... The Australian population has barely aged over the last 15 years, despite all of the demographics, because we've had this quite significant migration program and because of, or largely because of those foreign students, it's been very skewed young. Um, so we've had very few migrants who were 50 and a lot of migrants who were 20. And then secondly, as you say, it has been geographically very diverse, not just China, but Malaysia and India and Nepal and a whole series of Asian countries um, and indeed a whole series of Middle Eastern countries that have significantly increased the cultural diversity of the country, by definition, they are relatively well-educated people from those countries, uh, and they have certainly made Australia a much more, or at least Australian cities, a much more diverse place um, than, than it has been. And, and of the growth in the Australian population over the last five years, roughly two-thirds of it has been migrants. Um, so this is a really big force for reshaping Australia, and as you say... Um, you can eat better in more more different cuisines in Australia than I think anywhere else in the world. Maybe you can sometimes get better Chinese in Shanghai, although it's pretty good here, and maybe some of the time you can get better Middle Eastern food in the Middle East. Um, but um, 
you know, you will never find a city in which you can get really high quality food from all of those different cultures, um, as you will in in Melbourne and Sydney. And of course, it's not just about the food; it's about a lot more than that in terms of the extraordinary cultural melting pot that Australia has become, uh, and a real ability to work across those cultures. There are any number of corporates in Australia that have successfully integrated workforces with people from all. All of those backgrounds, uh, and I think um, the people who run those companies would say, "Look, our workforce is stronger for it in terms of our ability to to work with people from around the world." It has really helped. Um, I think one of the side effects is that when you decide that you want to go marketing international um, student courses in China and Malaysia and Vietnam and Nepal and um, uh, Saudi Arabia or whatever, finding someone from Melbourne who's been to the University of Melbourne uh, but who speaks as a native speaker any one of those languages I've just mentioned um, uh, or at least languages appropriate to those places is really not very hard. Uh, so that has been, I think, an enormous benefit for the Australian universities but it's also been a benefit for Australian businesses more generally that you know finding a um, highly qualified speaker in basically any language from anywhere in the world um, is perhaps less of a challenge in Melbourne and Sydney than any other country in the world, any other city in the world. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I love uh, any policy czar that brings the past to understand the present. So once again, thank you for taking the time for this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, John.